0: It is Tuesday, February 14th, 2023, Valentine's Day on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Our website here, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day when the show is over. We, of course, encourage you to listen live. Everything you need at GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast also accessible at FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We air 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern weekdays. I'm the political editor at townhall.com. Fox News contributor. I'll be on Kennedy's show tonight. Can't wait for that. 7 p.m. hour, part of the panel. That's Fox Business Network this evening. Here's our radio lineup. Stanley Kurtz will join us. Later on this hour, there is a new twist in the Florida versus College Board AP African-American Studies battle. It seems like the College Board has decided to reverse course again and go to war with Florida. Stanley Kurtz has been covering this very closely. We'll get his analysis and reaction. Spencer Clavin in our next hour will be our guest. Brand new book, How to Save the West. One of the brightest young thinkers on the conservative side in America these days. Great new book, an important one. We'll have that conversation. Molly Hemingway joining us in our final hour, as will U.S. Senator Marco Rubio, Republican of Florida. He is the ranking Republican ...on the Senate Intelligence Committee, and boy, there's a lot to talk about with him, obviously, with some breaking news earlier... ...about more jets being scrambled today, this time in response to Russian aircraft getting close to U.S. airspace. So, we will talk about that and more with Senator Rubio. Fox News alert at the beginning of this show. Some horrible news last night in East Lansing, Michigan. Michigan State University, where there was a mass shooting... Killing three students, five at least seriously wounded, at last report. And I was following the developments as they unfolded on social media and on TV news last evening. And it's just awful. You know, you think about young lives that were taken, young lives that will never be the same, families, friends, who have had loved ones robbed from them. I also can't help but think about the senior class at Michigan State. This is your senior year. Finally, it kind of feels a little bit normal. Your collegiate experience got off to a completely abnormal start with COVID and all the restrictions. And here's this final year that's supposed to be one of the best years of your lives. And then this happens. This shooting mars the final year of your undergraduate uh, undergraduate experience. It's just so much heartbreak on that campus last night and today. And I think. Whenever there's a terrible event like this, an atrocity, part of how we empathize. Is to put ourselves in the shoes of people affected directly. By the incident. And so you think back to your own time in college or high school. I think back to the multiple occasions where I went to East Lansing. I'm a fellow Big Ten grad, was up there for some sporting events, hung out with some Michigan State students, had beers with some of their sports fans over the years, have walked parts of that sprawling campus in East Lansing. And you just think about how that enclave in Michigan was Disrupted in such a terrible way. Now we're learning more and more about what happened. A lot of mysteries remain. The alleged assailant is dead. He apparently shot himself last night, late last night, as authorities were closing in. He's a 43-year-old man. With, last I checked, no clear ties to the community or the university, but apparently had some written threats directed at, like, grade schools in New Jersey on his person or near him when the police encountered him. The motive here is unclear. It appears that he used a handgun. Criminal records suggest that he had one. In fact, he had been convicted of a gun crime in the past, so he should not have had this gun. There were mental illness issues documented with this person. Authorities were aware of this person. And then for some reason, he showed up on the campus of Michigan State with the handgun that he should have never had as a convicted criminal with mental health issues, sort of a poster child for someone who shouldn't have a gun. Shouldn't have ever had one after that conviction under any circumstances, but he got his hands on one and decided to inflict horror on as many people as he could. I don't know how that can be explained, what to even say about that. What I have unfortunately seen is our sick ritual in this country, whenever there is a shooting like this, Where some people say that they are sending thoughts and prayers to the affected community and then people come right back and say, we don't want your thoughts and prayers, we want action, then people get offended by that. There's just a certain straight-to-battle stations mentality, especially among partisans, where everyone has their scripted role. You've got your point to make, then the predictable counterpoint, then the inevitable counter-counterpoint, and on and on it goes. I understand, even though I'm a Second Amendment supporter, I understand on some level why some people have this impulse to reject thoughts and prayers as an empty cliche in their minds. But thinking about the afflicted is an act of caring, especially among strangers. Sending thoughts, having the thoughts of this preoccupying someone's mind is evidence that they care. Millions of Americans believe powerfully in prayer. And I think to ridicule, refuse, reject these acts, which reflect compassion and caring, is really ugly and divisive. Even though, for a lot of people, the pain is raw and immediate. There is a Michigan representative in the state legislature a Democrat, who tweeted, Today we begin to collectively heal from the horrific events which transpired. Tomorrow we work. My official statement regarding the Michigan State University shooting is below. Bleep your thoughts and prayers. He just spells it out. And it's the very first line of his official statement as well. That was prepared and approved. They said, yes, let's go with this. The very first line, bleep your thoughts and prayers. That was the response. Alyssa Slotkin is a member of Congress from Michigan. I believe she's wanting to seek that open Senate seat. She got in front of the cameras last night, and she said this in Cut 27. Less offensive, less insulting, less profane, but listen to Cut 27.
1: I am filled with rage that we have to have another press conference to talk about our children being killed in their schools. And I would say that you either care about protecting kids or you don't. You either care about having an open, honest conversation about what is going on in our society or you don't. But please don't tell me you care about the safety of children if you're not willing to have a conversation about keeping them safe in a place that should be a sanctuary.
0: Well, Michigan State, by and large, if you look at their rules, is a, gun a gun-free zone. The person who infiltrated that sanctuary was a convicted criminal with mental health issues who should have not had access to a gun, having broken gun laws in the past, and yet was able to procure a gun anyway. And it wasn't a weapon of war, quote-unquote, the term that's used a lot, the type of gun that often people target for restrictions or regulation or banning. This was a handgun. This is not an act of white supremacy, another talking point that people often rush to because you can look up the name and mugshot of the shooter. Not a white supremacy situation. I'm not going to say his name. That's my policy. Not going to glorify him in any way. But I understand the anger that the Congresswoman is evincing here, but I'm sorry, but the thinking is very shallow. You either care about protecting kids or you don't. Okay, 99.8% of our society cares about protecting kids from violence. All of us do. All of us do. No one wants innocent kids, young people, anyone to be killed, murdered, their lives cut short. None of us want that. Now, I understand in our tribal politics... You can point to examples of the other tribe not protecting kids. Saying, well, what about guns? Or what about abortion? Or what about these alleged abuses with trans stuff? You can just go back and forth. But I think the accusation that the other side doesn't care about kids, the accusation actually proves the value. The universal value that we all care. There's a sense of rawness and numbness and anger and sadness whenever anything like this happens. It's like, oh, we have to have serious conversations. Okay, we've had serious conversations. We've tried to model that here on the show. After Uvalde, which was just unspeakable, the elementary school shooting, we had a lot of tough conversations here. I wrote a whole piece at townhall.com, elements of which irked rankled some of my fellow conservatives. But I was trying to have a conversation in good faith. It's hard to have a conversation in good faith when there's something like this that happens and immediately people start to say, well, you either agree with us on a bunch of gun ban stuff or you don't care about keeping kids safe. What's the actual law, aside from the laws that this perpetrator allegedly has already broken on multiple occasions what law would have prevented this from a guy who presumably based on his history was legally barred from having a gun getting a handgun and shooting more than half a dozen people what law would have prevented that aside from repealing the second amendment and confiscating all the guns in this country repealing a fundamental constitutional right and going on a Government program of mass confiscation from law-abiding people, of handguns even. Right? If that's the solution that you want to put forward, setting about to repeal the Second Amendment and confiscating, what is it, hundreds of millions of guns, say so and go try. But I don't think that that is a realistic or respectful conversation to have. And I think we should try to have realistic and respectful conversations. And sometimes that just entails recognizing that sometimes the law, oftentimes the law, can only do so much when there is violent mental illness and when there is evil in the world. Counterpoints could be in a mostly gun-free zone in a university campus, you have a bunch of innocent people totally defenseless. Against an act of evil like this. Is that part of the respectful conversation that we're supposed to have, Congresswoman, if you want to be considered among those who cares about the safety of our kids? It just sort of it gets frustrating what the conversations are allowed to entail based on the rules that they set out and the demagoguery that starts immediately. I think obviously mental health and actual successful enforcement of laws already on the books. Apparently when this guy broke the law previously with a gun, the reports are that they downgraded the charges. Why don't we start there enforcing laws that already exist? Focusing on mental health. And I don't even want to, be angry about this. I'm so sad about this. It's horrifying. Imagine being in a dorm, 21, some guy twice your age who doesn't even have anything to do with your school just shows up and decides to start shooting people. It's just appalling. It's atrocious. And I think framing this whole issue in the most uncharitable way really sort of like almost a dehumanizing otherizing way of people that you believe don't have the right solutions and therefore you're going to aggressively insult them profanely or angrily rejecting the thoughts and prayers that they actually want to pour out to an affected community what does that do what purpose does that serve beyond further dividing us and tearing at the fabric of our society that should bind us together? What does that achieve aside from more hatred? Which is obviously the exact opposite of what we need. There may not be a perfect solution, but less hatred would be up there, at least in my book. So to our friends and people in the Michigan State community, here at this show, our thoughts and yes, our prayers go out to you. We are heartbroken here. In solidarity, we say go green, go white on a very dark day. And as we go to break, I want to play this for you, the Michigan State alma mater, sung by their marching band, a cappella, very beautiful. I just want you to listen right now.
3: Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. Not exactly an upbeat start to this Valentine's Day edition, but... The news comes as it comes. And in our first segment talking about the shooting at Michigan State, happens to be today. That is the five year anniversary of the Parkland shooting, which left 17 innocent people dead. There is a sickness out there. There's no doubt about it. We might disagree on the solutions, but there there is a sickness. 17 innocent people five years ago. I saw tweets from a Parkland parent, Ryan Petty, who posted a poem today. Hunter Pollock, who lost his sister. He's now a law student. Asking people to keep the victims and their families in our prayers for continued love and support. So we want to send that along as well here. Tough day yesterday, tough day today. When we come back, we turn to politics. Stanley Kurtz is here. College Board versus Florida. Next.
3: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: Glad you're here with us on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast, always free. Joining us now, Stanley Kurtz, senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's been writing at National Review now for months about this College Board African-American stuff, AP proposal, and the buzzsaw that they've run into in Florida. We've been talking about that and writing about it from almost the beginning, but Stanley was there from the start, and he joins me now. Stanley, good to have you on the show. Well, Guy, thanks so much for having me. All right, let's talk about where things stand, because last we had given an update to this audience, it seemed as though Florida had struck a pretty significant blow against the College Board and against some of the excesses in this proposed curriculum. I had read the curriculum. Three-fourths of it seemed totally fine to me. It was the final unit that had, I would say, a a number of potential problems or obvious problems. There was pushback. Then the college board said they were going to reevaluate. And then they announced changes and alterations to the proposal. And it seemed like a, a victory for Florida and Governor DeSantis. Then there was a huge backlash to the backlash. The professional left, the activist left going crazy over this, basically accusing the College Board of caving to racists and fascists and all the things that they always say. And there were calls for resignations and all this stuff. So over the weekend, in response to that, there was a new letter put out by the College Board, basically accusing Florida of all sorts of things, going to war with the state of Florida, offering quote-unquote clarifications that included... The allegation that Florida and officials in that state and the DeSantis administration are engaging in, quote, misinformation, slander, all in pursuit of, quote, a political agenda. Okay, that's where things are now. What do you make of this letter from the College Board and their finger pointing that it's Florida acting in bad faith?
5: Well, Guy, I'm not at all convinced by the College Board's letter. I think they're trying to cover themselves with their their left side, uh, who are the people who really support them as a rule. The left is very angry, as you said, with the College Board for um, taking out a lot of the required readings in the earlier curriculum that uh, Florida had most objected to and that conservatives in general had most objected to. And um, now... The left is is um, trying to blame Florida for all of these problems, and even more, the College Board is trying to deny that it actually has made much of any change to the curriculum
0: at all. And, uh, and that the- Florida had anything to do with it, right? They are kind of saying, oh, yes, we knew that this might be a problem, and we had all these changes in the works already. And our back and forth with Florida over months, that had nothing to do with the precipitating event that caused us to make the change. I mean, the timeline, at least from Florida's side, would suggest otherwise. But they're, they're trying to say, like, we were naive and didn't understand things. But, of course, we understood everything. And we did it. And it happened to align with Florida's complaints, but it had nothing to do with Florida. And they're lying. It seems like a bit of a jumble.
5: There's an underlying problem here, Guy, which is that uh, what is the College Board for? Uh, What is the authority of the College Board? States are supposed to control their own schools and local districts as well. The College Board uh, acts like a de facto unelected national school board because it's monopoly over the advanced placement program allows it to dictate curriculum to all 50 states as if it was somehow in charge of everyone's schools. So when the college board says publicly, you know, we've made some tweaks to this curriculum, but it has nothing to do with Florida. We don't really care what Florida says, and if Florida were to tell us uh, what to do, we'd ignore them because a a proper college board uh, doesn't pay attention to, quote, political Um, advice. Um, That is is exactly backwards. Uh, A governor, uh, a a duly elected governor, represents the voters of his state, and they have uh, the chief say in the construction of a school curriculum. This is rather like Terry McAuliffe in Virginia making that gaffe that caused him Uh, the governorship when he said parents don't have a say in education. Governor DeSantis is speaking for the voters of Florida, uh, and so is his legislature, and so are the local school boards. So where does the college board come off ignoring what they have to say? But in the eyes of the college board, we must only listen to so-called experts, the scholars and the teachers who crafted oh, this. Certain, uh,
0: certain experts, right? Not all the experts, not a variety of experts, but ones that they want to listen to. Exactly,
5: exactly. The, the real point is that these experts are not experts. They are political actors. And you see this more clearly in the AP African American Studies Program than in almost any other because the political tilt in, say, AP U.S. history is unofficial. It's suppressed. The professors there who create that curriculum don't advertise the fact that they are advocating for leftist politics or neo-Marxism or whatever. They claim to just be scholars doing American history. In reality, of course, they're very biased and very political. But in AP African-American studies, uh, that – Feeds off a tradition within African American studies programs and all of the so-called studies programs at our universities—Latino studies, um, gender studies, environmental studies—a whole series of so-called studies programs—they are, they are much more openly political. And many of the um, scholars who created the AP African American Studies curriculum and who are in, uh, whose writings are in that curriculum are very open about saying we are political, we must be political, African-American studies must be political. So the college board, on the one hand, is saying, well, we can't be political and listen to Governor DeSantis. We have to be apolitical and listen to these scholars. But the scholars are saying... We are political, and our discipline is political, and Governor DeSantis is representing the uh, wishes of the people of Florida, which is how curriculum is supposed to be created.
0: Yeah, it's a bunch of hardcore ideologues here, and part of the self-flagellation that we see from the College Board in this letter in between their shots at Florida – is like, oh, gosh, we just didn't realize that we didn't communicate about this properly and we were naive and, you know, we, we didn't explain ourselves and we weren't transparent enough. Well, their whole plan was a lack of transparency. Their plan was to not let anyone see this curriculum until people like you and I got our hands on it, started talking about it, writing about it. Of course, you know, Florida had been expressing their concerns about it behind the scenes for a number of months. They want to shield this from public eye for as long as possible, and then basically try to bully states through inertia into saying, "Are you really going to be a racist and not allow this to be in high schools?" And DeSantis, I think, threw a wrench in the problem in in the whole plan by making it clear that if they were going to keep some of this obviously ideological political stuff in there, like you know, prison abolition and intersectionality and you know, black queer studies and all this stuff, that is not central to African-American history, Uh, you know, reparations, all this stuff. That was going to be in there for high school students. That was not going to be permissible in Florida. Then they made some changes, and now they're kind of backtracking because of the fury that they're getting from the other side. So I kind of wonder what happens now, because they've really fired a salvo back at Florida in a letter that really paints Florida very poorly, the Department of Education in Florida, they have their own whole timeline that they've published, and, and I linked to it today at townhall.com, saying, here's what it was from our end. It seems like DeSantis isn't going to really budge on this. I would imagine other red state governors are now watching this thing play out. I mean, it seems like there might be something coming to a head here with the college board more broadly. In fact, DeSantis was asked about this yesterday at a separate event. Someone asked him a question about the controversy. Here's what he said in Cut 23. So this college board, like, nobody elected them to anything. They're just kind of there,
6: and they're providing service. And so you can either utilize those services or not, and so they've provided the, the, these AP courses for a long time. Uh, but, you know, there, there are probably some other vendors who may, may be able to do that job uh, as good or maybe even a lot better. Uh, so I've already talked with, with Paul, and I think the legislature is going to look to, to reevaluate kind of how Florida is doing that. Of course, our universities can or can't accept um, college board uh, courses for credit. Maybe they'll do others. And then also just whether our universities do the SAT versus the ACT. I think they do both, Uh, but we're going to evaluate kind of how all that that process goes. Uh, But at the end of the day, uh, we highlighted things that were very problematic. And I'll tell you, it wasn't just people like me saying that. Across the political spectrum, people were saying that, like, you know, this really is junk. Why don't we just do and teach the things that matter Why is it always someone has to try to jam their agenda down our throats?
0: And we we mentioned on this show a black elected official, a Democrat in Florida, who said that unit four of this proposed curriculum, in his mind, was not black history. It was trash. So there has been some criticism, not just from conservatives. But, Stanley, it sounded there like DeSantis was hinting at maybe like, okay, If this is where you're going to go, College Board, if you're going to go to war, then we're going to go to war. And maybe your monopoly on this whole thing in the state of Florida is uh, not going to fly anymore. I'm not exactly sure what an alternative realistically looks like right now, but it seems like this might be broadening out from just the skirmish over this particular potential AP class to something bigger about the relationship between Florida, Florida schools and the College Board in general.
5: Well, I think you're right. Guy, um, it's tricky as to how it will actually play out. It is possible to switch over from the SAT to the ACT, the general test, the general what used to be called scholastic scholastic aptitude test that students would take to get into college. The AP program is a more difficult issue because um, students do get a benefit in getting into schools and getting college credit by taking those AP courses. So if Florida cuts back on those, they are potentially disadvantaging their students. Now, there is a group that I've written about from time to time called American Achievement Testing, which I think is the group with the best potential to become a real competitor to the college board. But that would probably only work if And I think this could happen. It might even happen now. A number of states need to get together as a kind of consortium and support that company to help to turn it in uh, to a real competitor, and private donors would have to get involved. And if you did that uh, and you had a company like American Achievement Testing, which was advised by scholars, going back to your point about, so called experts only being one side and only a very particular kind of expert, American achievement testing goes to some of the scholars who don't uh mimic the uh, orthodox academic leftist line and and they could uh help it to create tests and curricula which provided a real alternative to the college board and then states and school districts could could choose they could control their own curriculum just by saying okay we got a couple of vendors here they they take a a significantly different approach to these subjects like apus history and apus government and politics and uh, our particular district would prefer to go this way rather than that way and then i think you'll see a a truly transformative change, when you have a real competitor. And you could see that now with the SAT versus the um, ACT, but it's hard to do that in in the AP area without a competitor. Yeah,
0: Yeah, and I also wonder if just because, you know, the left hates any sense that their power and influence in a realm that they feel entitled to control might be slipping away, they go crazy. But something that a monopoly doesn't like, if you're the college board, is the threat of competition. And I wonder if DeSantis and even just like a handful of other governors, Abbott, some big state Republican governors got together and said, look, uh, we're going to start exploring in a serious way alternatives. That could also create a seesaw effect inside the college board because clearly they can be bullied. Right? They've been they've been influenced back and forth. First by the state of Florida, now by the leftists. It's sort of like they seem like they're twisting in the wind a little bit here. And maybe if they, they start to feel a threat to their monopoly, they might start to say, oh, oh, gosh, wait, you know, actually, let's be more conciliatory here. I just get the sense that this isn't over. And I wonder if this was a wise move for the college board to to do what they've done here, which is to, frankly, get political. The argument has been that they were already too political with an element of this course, and to wage war against someone who seems more than happy to do so, uh, to gamble on the college board's part.
5: Well, I agree, Guy. I think it was a mistake for them to do this, but now that they've done it, uh, well, I absolutely agree with you that they're going to be continually subjected to this push-and-pull I'm not sure I see a way for them to find a successful middle point, just because the two polarized sides in America are so far apart right now. I'm not sure I know what um, an African-American studies course would look like at this point that would satisfy both sides. And what if they – and can they even afford at this point not to start putting out – other studies courses and finding a successful compromise on those will be just as difficult so it, it could be that in general uh, and this is happening I think more broadly if you just look at social studies standards and school curricula in the blue and the red states you'll see that they really are drifting far apart. The red states are banning CRT, and the blue states are really mandating
0: CRT. They're requiring CRT, even though they said, we don't do that, it doesn't exist, it's a right-wing myth, but now we're requiring it because that's what the tribe demands. And the college board can decide, do they want to be conciliatory? Do they want to work together? Do they want to find a middle ground or at least really work hard to do that in good faith? Or do they want to become an appendage of the aggressive left in this country and then be treated accordingly? That's a decision that they have to make. I think they've made a number of mistakes already in this front, and trust me, we'll be watching, and watching most closely is Stanley Kurtz, who writes all about this at National Review, and he is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Stanley, we've got got to leave it here for now, up on a break, but we appreciate your time and your work on this subject. Thanks so
5: much for having me, Guy.
0: Let's step aside. We'll come right back. It's The Guy Benson Show.
5: The Guy Benson Show. More
3: next.
0: Back on the Guy Benson show, inflation report came out for January today, and it is not good. New York Times, this is the New York Times. They have their takeaways from what they call a report that showed inflation's alarming staying power. Inflation recorded a modest slowdown on an annual basis in January, but did not cool as much as economists expected. And other details within the report were more concerning. Main takeaways. Overall inflation cooled very slightly last month, but on a monthly basis, inflation was rapid, climbing 0.5% from December. Core inflation remained fast. Housing still a contributing factor to inflation. Food prices also climbing swiftly, with grocery prices up 0.5% on a monthly basis. The upshot, says the New York Times, that inflation is slowing, but it has a worrying amount of staying power. So the expectation was for this report to be better than it was, and those expectations were not met. And they were significantly worse in a number of ways, which is why this is a lingering issue that's going to stay with us for quite a while. And a lot of that goes back to Democratic policy. just a fact. Another hour on The Guy Benson Show coming up next. We'll get to it. Stay here.
3: Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show.
0: Our middle hour is here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in guybensonshow.com podcast free every day when the show is over if you can't listen live i'll be on kennedy tonight fox business network 7 p.m. hour please do tune in if you have the opportunity to do so still to come on the radio today spencer claven molly hemingway marco rubio all upcoming first of fox news alert the dow closing down 156 points today we just ran through some of the inflation numbers not great not great bob So the Dow in the red, closing at 34,089. So in the last hour, we talked a little bit about the escalating battle between Florida and the College Board over this African-American studies course that's been proposed, AP course for high schoolers. The soundbite that I played in that segment of Governor DeSantis, he was asked about it, and he gave an answer that spanned really two minutes. We played part of it. The event that he was at where the question arose was an event where he was announcing some of the state of Florida's plans to combat so-called ESG banking in that state, which is something if you're a conservative you might have heard about. This is kind of like a corporate leftist takeover, and DeSantis is rolling out a plan to try to cut the influence of that mentality, that ideology, that agenda – from dominating businesses, especially businesses that seek to do business in the Sunshine State. So that's what DeSantis is up to these days as he is building toward this legislative session where probably quite a lot of things are going to get done. Someone did ask him a question if at some point with the fact that Nikki Haley's getting into the race and we'll play some of that audio later and other people have their names in the mix. Well, what about you? Are you going to announce a little quick exchange here in Cut 26?
4: Presidential run day? Do you plan on following suit?
0: <laughs>
6: Wouldn't you like to know?
0: <laughs> so not an answer, just a kind of uh, a tease and a chuckle and uh, some laughter in the room there. But I know that there are some allies of former President Donald Trump. And in fact, Trump himself I would spend less time thinking about this stuff or talking about it if it were just some of these randoms on social media. Like I saw one of them had uh, uncovered the outrageous scandal that Ron DeSantis' wife goes by her middle name. (gasps) Impeach. (laughs) It's like grasping at straws. But Trump is out there on kind of a daily basis going after DeSantis. And I know that there's been some reporting, including from Maggie Haberman, who is Trump's BFF at The New York Times, that Trump is, I guess, test driving new nicknames for Ron DeSantis because maybe Ron DeSanctimonious isn't really sticking. So uh, one of the ones that I heard was shut down Ron, a reference to COVID. I mean, again, I think that it would be stupendously idiotic for the Trump people to try to make that a point of contention like the relative COVID policies between Trump and DeSantis, trying to paint DeSantis as the shutdown guy, good luck. But that's one of them. Another one that I guess Trump uh, is becoming fond of is Meatball Ron, which I I don't know. You'd have to ask him what exactly that's a reference to. Is it like Ron likes to eat meatballs, Ron's Italian Ron's a meathead. I just, you know, so meatball Ron, that one's out there. And it's funny to watch. I mean, it's not surprising to watch, like, the hardest core Trump cult people, like, not just average Trump supporters or people who like Trump or open to Trump who voted for Trump, like, the hardest core people, right, who defend every single thing he's ever done. Um, And, you know, they'll just switch on a dime 180 degrees if that's what it takes. It's interesting watching them aligning with the Democrats, on a lot of this stuff, with journalists and liberal media folks and Democrats sort of stoking these embers and egging on the Trump people, like, "Oh yeah, Meatball Ron, high five, that's pretty good." I saw an MSNBC host suggesting that Trump should go after DeSantis's height, calling him like "short Ron" or something like that. In A similar vein, let's see if I can get this right. There's a guy who works for American Bridge. In fact, he's the president of American Bridge, which is one of the top Democratic oppo research firms in the country. Right? American Bridge, they are the folks who find a lot of the dirt on Republicans or try to gin up dirt to attack them in campaigns. That's their job. They're left-wingers. I guess they... (laughs) They were asleep at the switch in that George Santos race, evidently, but this is what they do. And the president of this Democratic oppo research firm has been posting photos of DeSantis on social media wearing cowboy boots and saying that DeSantis, quote, consistently wears high-heeled boots in order to appear taller. So they, they really like this thing, I guess, like Little Marco style. That maybe Trump will go after Ron DeSantis on his height. DeSantis is what, like 5'11", something like that. And the boots, these are not high-heeled boots. These are just cowboy boots. I am not an expert on cowboy boots. I've never worn cowboy boots. I'm a city slicker. And sort of just like, you know, a waspy Northeasterner, I wear Sperry topsiders all the time, but I'm familiar with cowboy boots and all these photos, these these damning photos that the Dem-Oppo researchers have that they're just sort of shoveling over to the Trump supporters to feed this stupid, superficial, childish attack line. They're just photos of cowboy boots. That's what the heel looks like in a cowboy boot. So that's what they're up to. And I saw one journalist Make the observation, he's absolutely right, that the Democratic Opposition Research Organization here, because we saw the DNC, remember, what, a week or two ago, the DNC doing rapid response on behalf of Trump against DeSantis on COVID policies. They were not telling the truth, but they were aligning with Trump and amplifying his attacks on DeSantis. We saw Trump people picking up an old discarded failed attack line against DeSantis about the stupid, you know, grooming thing, or he had a beer when there were students around. That was originally a Democratic hit that the Trump people are running with, some of them, and, and Trump is escalating that and drawing attention to that himself. And now here you've got the here you've got the stupid uh, cowboy boots thing. Yet another element of the Democratic apparatus pushing this. And a journalist said it's amazing to watch the Democrats' OPPO research folks tailoring attacks specifically for the purpose, obviously, of getting them to Trump, for Trump to then use against DeSantis. There's almost, perhaps, a lesson to be learned here with the Democrats wanting to use Trump as a vessel to attack DeSantis. I wonder what that might be. I'm Guy Benson. Interesting story about this horrible train derailment in Ohio. You might have seen it on the news channel. It's getting a fair amount of national attention. Pretty scary situation. Axios has a write-up on some of the basics. What we know about Ohio train derailment. That's the headline there. And here's what the story says, just reading excerpts. A 150-car Norfolk Southern freight train carrying hazardous chemicals and other material derailed in the town of East Palestine, Ohio, on February 3rd, forcing hundreds of people to evacuate the town for several days as the company vented and burned carcinogenic chemicals from cars involved in the fiery crash. The Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, said on February 12th it had not detected any levels of concern of hazardous substances released during or after the crash, though it did say it was continuing to monitor the air throughout the community including inside at least 210 homes. The train was pulling at least five tanker cars containing vinyl chloride, a colorless but hazardous gas used to produce PVC, plastic, and vinyl products. And I know a lot of people in that community are highly concerned. They have described what they've gone through. And it kind of feels like it hasn't gotten... A huge amount of attention until just recently. It was more of a local news story in a lot of ways. But the Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg, is coming under some controversy and under some criticism as well, including from some within his own party. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar tweeting about this just yesterday, saying East Palestine railroad derailment will have significant negative impacts on the health and well-being of the residents for decades. There's almost zero national media attention, she tweeted. We need a congressional inquiry and direct action from Pete Buttigieg, she tags him, to address this tragedy. And part of the reason that she was tagging him, I would imagine, was that he had been virtually silent on the matter for days. And a lot of critics have pointed out that Buttigieg was quick within a matter of hours. He was out with a statement about the shooting at Michigan State University that we talked about earlier where he was talking about gun violence and and so on and so forth. And you can agree with his statement, quibble with it, what have you, but he put one out. Of course, he moved to Michigan. He made that his new home state just recently. A lot of political observers wondered if he had just decided that he can't win statewide in a place like Indiana. He's tried and failed in the past, so he needs to go to bluer territory to have... Maybe that path opened to him politically. So here's a mass shooting in his new state, and sort of like a politician, quote-unquote, from that state, he was making a statement about it. But a lot of these critics were saying, okay, well, you're out with the statement on the shooting, but what about the 10 days of basically public silence on the train derailment? where there was not any sort of major, high-profile, robust response, at least publicly, from the Department of Transportation. I mean, this is in his portfolio. And then because people started pointing this out, and because there were tweets like we saw from Ilhan Omar, and people started wondering where the hell is Secretary Pete on all of this stuff, well, then they leapt into action and put out a statement, and he had a tweet about it, about his ongoing concern, watching closely, that sort of thing. But it seems like that was only precipitated by political pressure. And this has been something of a pattern with Buttigieg in this position. And you go back, look, Pete is smart and impressive in a number of ways. He also strikes me as someone who's been calculating a path to power since he was in utero. And I think that really isn't subtle. He kind of exudes that sort of mentality. He's very good at talking. He's a gifted communicator where he speaks calmly and authoritatively in these pristine paragraphs. And that's fine. But when he has been in positions of power from a small city mayor now to a cabinet secretary post, and you can look at the meandering path he's taken to both of those positions, You have to ask about results and competence, not just book smarts. And there are lots of critiques about his mayor tenure in South Bend, critiques that were actually raised pretty aggressively in the early stages of the Democratic presidential primary, right? Where he was a small city mayor, he had failed in at least one statewide run for office. He also ran for DNC chair and finished a pretty distant third or fourth in that race, if I recall correctly. And then he decided, well, you know what? I need to be president. So as a very young man, he ran for president. Never really got the type of momentum that he needed to to have a chance at winning, despite maybe technically narrowly winning Iowa because of that fiasco. We don't really know with confidence who won Iowa for the Democrats in the last cycle. But he successfully raised his profile. These types of televised forums and debates very much played into his skill set. He also checked an interesting identity box, and so into the presidential cabinet he went. And we've raised from time to time some pretty big issues that have fallen within the purview of the Department of Transportation where he has got, I think, some explaining to do when it comes to his actions, his response, the optics, the timing, some of the choices that he has made. It seems like a lot of it is just politics all the way down and then him trying to make sure that it's seeming like he's doing something after people are wondering why he's doing something or calling into question some of his choices in that post and it's just been a pattern and this is another one where you have this major transportation related event that's highly problematic for the surrounding community And then not until the national media attention picks up and the criticism mounts, including some elements of his own political coalition saying, essentially, where is Pete on this? Then all of a sudden they spring into action. And I guess the next piece of this pattern would be for him to eventually appear on Fox News, where he'd be challenged about it. And then he would have this carefully rehearsed Smackdown type answer. And a certain crowd within the left-wing online community would give him a bunch of hosannas. And they'd say, oh, look, he just crushed Fox. And then it'd be on to the next incompetence. And the cycle will start again. That's kind of what we've seen from him in this role. And trust me, conservatives are paying attention and noticing it. So are potential future rivals for this guy. I guarantee you there is something of a dossier being developed an oppo research dossier on pete based on this stuff in democratic circles i promise you that is happening right now one last thing he appeared earlier in the week pete did at some forum and he did not mention the train derailment in fact that came later after the criticism but he did have time to lament the lack of racial diversity in construction worker circles cut 14 we have heard way too many stories from generations past of infrastructure where you got a, a neighborhood, often a neighborhood of color, that finally
4: sees the project come to them, but everyone in the hard hats on that project looking like, uh, uh, you know, doing, doing the g- good-paying jobs, don't look like they came from anywhere near the neighborhood.
0: Okay. I mean, an interesting discussion perhaps, but is that really the priority? Should that be the focus of the current 2023 transportation secretary when there's this disaster that's happened in the Midwest. A lot of people raised the question. And then when that became loud enough, then the posture and the rhetoric and the words changed accordingly. Which doesn't really strike me as leadership, strikes me as politics. And it's just something to keep an eye on as this very ambitious person, I would expect continues to seek additional high office in the future. The Guy Benson Show will step aside. We'll come right back. When we return, Spencer Clavin is here. Brand new book, How to Save the West. I think a very important book. I've got some fundamental questions to lay out for him. A conversation that you don't want to miss straight ahead.
3: we are listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcasts free every day. And I'm delighted to welcome to the program Spencer Clavin, author of a brand new book out today, How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. He's a podcaster at The Daily Wire. I would call him a public intellectual. He's a friend. He's a classicist. He's got a Ph.D. from Oxford. He has deep-rooted understanding of the issues at play in this book, and they're very important. Spencer, congratulations on the book. Welcome to the show.
4: Thank you so much, my friend. I really appreciate your having me on.
0: Very pleased to have you. I want to actually start with some foundational questions, because before someone might plunk down money to buy How to Save the West, they might want to know, for starters, what exactly is the West? How would you define the capital W, West, for the purposes of this conversation.
4: Yep, that is an excellent place to start. I told a friend of mine that I was writing a book called How to Save the West, and she said, oh, that's great. I love John Wayne movies. And I said, (laughs) that's not quite what I'm talking about. Um, Actually, the – capital W. West, when we talk about it in terms of the great traditions of the past, um, what we mean is we mean Athens and Jerusalem and their cultural inheritance, the, the wisdom and the literature that comes down from to us from these two great pillars of our civilization. Uh, Athens stands in for all the rich philosophy of ancient Greece and Rome, and Jerusalem stands in for the Jewish and Christian tradition, the scriptures, the church fathers. And these two streams kind of merge um, to build Europe and to build the world that we're now living in, some of the greatest minds that have ever lived, uh, debated, and discussed through this tradition. And what that means, thank God, is we're not alone. It's really easy to feel like, you know, especially uh, people kind of in our generation, all of these new technologies are kind of disorienting, and they're um, changing the way we relate to each other. It all feels very new. But in fact, these profound questions that we're up against, like, you know, what's man's place in the universe and what's a human being? Uh, why are we uh, better or different from a machine? These sorts of questions have been asked again and again uh, throughout this tradition, and there are enormous riches of wisdom to guide us as we kind of face down the future.
0: See, having not read the book, I was – prepared with a bunch of questions about the Rocky Mountains and some of those beautiful states. Now I've got nothing, Spencer. I'm completely lost. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm happy uh, to talk
4: with you about yeah, the stories <laughs> yeah, of <me.
0: laughs> the Small W West. Okay, so the next question, because I think you've laid that out very well. When you think about the inheritors of this tradition, or this kind of two-lane tradition, and the modern West, does that tradition need saving? Because you're saying, here's my roadmap for how to save the West, but does it really need saving? Are the situations that we face today really that dire? I know sometimes conservatives get spun up over various controversies. It feels like, oh, this is slipping away. Could that be overblown? Is it just a usual sort of uh, blip that comes up from time to time? Or are we really at an inflection point where serious conversations need to be devoted to saving and preserving what we have and what we have inherited?
4: Yeah, it's a really important question. It's one of the things I lay out right at the opening. Of the book, there is a fair amount of this that's just built in to the human experience and built in also to kind of conservative rhetoric. Um, In in the work of Tacitus, the great Roman imperial historian, there's a character who says something like, "You know, mankind always has this venomous distaste for the present, and he wishes he were living in the past." And that kind of nostalgia is always with us. Um, It's always easy to feel like now is the worst time to be alive. Um, At the same time, I mentioned the kind of digital technology revolution that we're going through. And I really think that is a sea change. It's kind of akin to what happened when the printing press came along. And you had the same explosion of information, the same kind of authoritarian impulse to shut it down and control what could be said. Um, And on top of that, with all this new tech, you know, we have this kind of reorientation of the way we see ourselves and each other and the world. Um, And what I argue in the book is that's actually thrown us back onto these really fundamental first principle questions that I lay out five crises. You know, is there anything such a thing as true and false? Um, What's the purpose of being a human being? These sorts of issues. And so when we start asking those questions, that's precisely when it becomes more urgent and not less to recover and to preserve the kinds of thought that have been passed down to us by our forebears. We've been kind of talked out of it because we've been told that this stuff is either just dusty and primitive and superstitious or worse, it's, you know, racist and sexist and wrong and backwards. Um, But none of those things is true. Actually, this is our our best hope for addressing some of those fundamental questions that lie under the skin of our our news cycle.
0: Okay, so that last assertion that you made brings me to my third and final foundational question before we get into certain elements of the book itself. Does the West deserve preservation, or does it deserve to be radically overhauled or even overthrown? Because I think a lot of people in our generation and younger – would say, all right, well, you know, we have been passed down this tradition in this society, and quite frankly, we think it sucks, and we've been told why it sucks. So why should we be concerned about the potential demise of something that really isn't good? And shouldn't we be looking for something better, something uh, drastically different? I think that's maybe the most important foundational question here. Does the West deserve saving? And if so, Spencer, I know that you and I agree it does. Why?
4: Well, this one is really personal for me because, yeah, I get this a lot that actually the history of – Europe and America, of Western civilization more broadly, is really just a litany of offenses against God and man. You know, It's all slavery and oppression of women and these terrible offenses against such absolute truths and principles as you know, inherent, the inherent equality and dignity of every human being and uh, his, you know, his rights in the, in the sight of, of God and of the law. And my answer to that is, who taught you Who taught you to criticize the past in terms of the rights of man, in terms of our fundamental equality? These noble and true ideas don't just drop out of the sky. They actually had to be hammered out painstakingly over generations, over centuries, among people that were not just kind of pulling these ideas out of thin air. They're not just common sense. Most people throughout most of history have not believed that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. And so when we say that those ideals haven't always been lived up to, it's perfectly true. We live in a fallen and a broken world. But the only reason that we know how to launch that criticism at all is because of the people who went before us and who carved out these ideas and installed them in our civilization and to throw that out because you know they haven't always been lived up to is the height of, of foolishness. We have to cling to them if we want to live up to them better.
0: Well, it's also arrogance. It's not just foolishness. It's arrogance as well. Like, oh, uh, yes, we are actually going to usher in a brand new era of something that we can't quite explain, but it's definitely be much better than this uh, horrible thing that we've inherited. And I think one of the questions that we always have to think about when it comes to these philosophical debates about the West, but also geopolitics. If not us, then who? What's the alternative, right? If people believe that the United States of America is so deeply flawed that it's a force for evil and bad in the world that we are the superpower, someone would fill that vacuum. Who would that be? And would that be preferable or better than the United States? That is, I think... A question that needs to be thought about very realistically and clearly by people. And similarly, if we're going to throw overboard this intellectual and moral tradition that has been passed down through the ages to us, what's the alternative? Not in theory, but in reality, because people can put out all sorts of theoretical new regimes that sound like ideas in the past that have failed miserably and led to untold human suffering and cruelty. I think That's part of the discussion as well, but you have to puncture, I think, some of the ignorance and some of the arrogance to get to that point in the conversation where people are willing to listen. That is part of the reason why you, Spencer Clavin, have written the book, How to Save West, and the subtitle, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises, refers to these five crises in the book, the crisis of reality, of the body, of meaning, of religion, and of the regime. We have a few minutes left. Maybe pick one or two of those that you think might be most important and why you selected from those five you know, one or two that you think you would want to maybe introduce as a starting point for people interested but skeptical when it comes to your ideas.
4: Absolutely. Well, I think another way of framing the question that you've been very rightly asking, you know, is compared to what? Compared to what are we falling short and what's the alternative to these these great traditions? And one benefit of studying the wisdom of the past is you come to learn that a lot of the alternatives uh, we are being presented now have been tried before and have failed. And so that's one reason why I would actually start with the crisis of the regime, the last one that you mentioned. It's the one that deals most directly with politics Kind of stuff that we tend to wake up and worry about in the morning. The other stuff is important, but it's preliminary to thinking about what's going to happen to. America? Where are we going to go? Um, And once you kind of study the long history of political philosophy, as I lay out in that portion of the book, you realize what a precious and delicate thing our particular kind of country is, the kind of country that they call a republic, which is an ancient idea resurrected by our founding fathers of balancing the different kinds of power against one another. And I end up by arguing there that, you know, Aristotle in his treatise on some of this stuff says beautifully that building a regime, uh, beyond all the politics, beyond all the kind of day-to-day voting and stuff like that, it's an act of love. Philia is the Greek word, political friendship, uh, civic community. And so reinvestment in that, it sounds so simple, and yet the simplest things are the hardest and sometimes the profoundest to do. So I end up arguing, and I think this is really key, um, that it, it, the crucial thing for us to turn the country around, if that's what people are concerned about, is to reinvest in neighbors, neighborliness, and neighborhoods, real life, face-to- face interaction with actual human beings. Um, More than anything, I think that's how to save the West.
0: Spencer, final question here, and it comes to you from the opposite vantage point of my first few challenges, which I was trying to channel, not necessarily younger, but I would imagine some of our younger listeners, they've been steeped in a lot of the skepticism or cynicism or negativity about the West, about our culture, about our values and all of that. On the other end of the spectrum – you probably have a number of our listeners out there who say oh yes that's all well and good i agree with his premise or premises that he's laying out in the book that's fine but is the west savable people would say I, you know i hope he's right i hope it can be saved it needs to be saved it deserves to be preserved all of that but there are people in this country who'd say you know what we're we're too far gone we're past the point of collapse we're like you know late stage roman empire Vibes right now, and we've passed the Rubicon. Is it savable? Well,
4: you know, this is a question I do raise in the book, and I am not going to sit here and tell you, you know, that I know what's going to happen tomorrow or, you know, five years down the line, um, that I can predict the future for you. I don't think anybody can, and that includes people who prophesy despair. They don't know what's going to happen any more than I do. But I will say this when you talk about the West, one of the great benefits of thinking of ourselves in terms of that great tradition, as inheritors of that tradition, is it's a tradition that has survived the rise and fall of civilization after civilization. I think of Marcus Cicero, who lived at the very end of the Roman Republic and had to retreat out of public life because in the immediate term, he failed. He had to, you know, write in private about republics, but the empire was coming, and he was one of the first victims of the new regime. So that's a failure in the immediate term. But if you fast forward hundreds and hundreds of years to the seventh. 1770s, enter one John Adams, a little curmudgeon who from his boyhood has pored over the speeches of none other than Marcus Tullius Cicero, gets up, gives the, the speech of his own in defense of our Declaration of Independence. That's this country on the road to its birth. When you're thinking in that kind of timescale with that kind of tradition, there's simply no room for despair. And we have no right to despair. What we have is a job to do. that's to carry that light, to bring it forward into our life and the way we show up for our kids, for our family, for our churches in the day-to-day, to uh, to carry that tradition forward because we don't know what future generations are going to pick it up. We have to leave the rest to God.
0: Yep. And we've got to educate current generations, immediate new generations, why it is good, why our ideas aren't just right and resilient and will come back if they're extinguished for a while, they will return down the line. We don't want to have to see that happen off into the future. We want to keep it going today. We want to keep the republic. We want to keep these ideas. And I think it's important for people to understand why it's worthwhile, why it's important. And that's why I think you ought to go out and buy a copy of How to Save the West – Ancient Wisdom for 5 Modern Crises by Spencer Claven, my guest on the Guy Benson show. Spencer, best of luck with the book. Really fascinating stuff, and we look forward to having you back.
4: Thank you so much, Guy. It's been a pleasure,
0: and anytime. Spencer Claven: How to Save the West. On the Guy Benson show, we will be right back.
3: Fresh Conservative Talk. Guy Benson Show.
0: Welcome back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Well, as of tomorrow, there will be two people in the presidential race looking ahead to 2024. Donald Trump's been in for months. He's been alone in that regard now for a while. But tomorrow, the announcement will come from Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. This has been widely reported now for a couple of weeks. And just to make it Officially, official, before it gets officially, officially, official, she put out and her team put out a video, three and a half minutes in length, rolling out her rationale for running, basically her ethos as a candidate. Here's a little excerpt from the announcement video in Cut 19.
7: Even on our worst day, we are blessed to live in America. I was born and raised in South Carolina, so I have seen the very best of our country. People here threw out the old tired political establishment and demanded accountability for their tax dollars Industry reports called us the beast of the southeast Which I love People came by the thousands for fresh starts moms and dads held their heads up high children learned. That it was always. a great day in South Carolina. It's a great day. It's a great day. A great day. A great day in South Carolina. We were strong. We were proud.
0: And then the big wind-up toward the end where she says that she's running for president. The final minute of this introductory video. Cut 20.
7: Republicans have lost the popular vote in seven out of the last eight presidential elections. That has to change. Joe Biden's record is abysmal, but that shouldn't come as a surprise. The Washington establishment has failed us over and over and over again. It's time for a new generation of leadership to rediscover fiscal responsibility, secure our border, and strengthen our country, our pride, our And our purpose. Some people look at America and see vulnerability. The socialist left sees an opportunity to rewrite history. China and Russia are on the march. They all think we can be bullied, kicked around. You should know this about me. I don't put up with bullies. And when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. I'm Nikki Haley, and I'm running for president.
0: There you have it. Not a surprise, but the words coming out of her own mouth. And tomorrow she will lay out her first speech as a presidential candidate in Charleston, South Carolina. Late morning, we'll have some coverage and reaction tomorrow here on the show. And then there will be two. First of probably many, I would imagine. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Molly Hemingway is here. We'll get her reaction to what you just heard tackle a bunch of other topics as well with molly it's all up next please stay tuned
3: it's five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world washington dc it's time for the guy benson show happy hour sponsored by the finnish long drink finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to america visit thelongdrink.com and now here's your host guy benson
0: It is the happy hour on this Tuesday, Valentine's Day. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free when the show is over every day. No charge, on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Catch me tonight on Kennedy in the 7 p.m. hour Eastern time. That's Fox Business Network. Can't wait for that. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. I heard from a listener just yesterday who tried it for the first time, and he was blown away. He's like, I didn't know that I would like this combination of flavors, but I do. You should check it out as well. 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. That's TheLongDrink.com. Joining us now is Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist, Fox News contributor, co-author of Justice on Trial. Also wrote her own book, also a bestseller, Rigged at MZ Hemingway on Twitter. Molly, always good to have you here.
1: Great to be here with you.
0: Are you a Valentine's Day gal or not really?
1: So, sort of not at all in that I'm not much for those types of schmaltzy holidays, but I do have children <laughs> and they get super into it and so I did get them cards and candy and they were like really excited and it made it fun. So.
0: My mom usually sends me peanut M&Ms. For Valentine's Day, she knows the way to my heart. (laughs) That is it, and so I just wanted to see. You didn't strike me as someone who goes above and beyond yourself. Like it's like, oh, it's it's Tuesday. I better have a candlelit dinner with Mark, or there's trouble. That doesn't seem like a Molly Hemingway move.
1: And I, I know this is going to sound totally cheesy, but I love my husband so much, and we have such a great relationship that I honestly feel like every day is just a wonderful day. And oh. I don't feel the need that, like, I don't think, oh, he better get me this or that because he's just wonderful every day.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, now I feel like we're watching like a <laughs> 90s sitcom where the whole studio audience goes, oh, at the same time. That's what just happened here on the show. Our whole team said it in unison, just off microphone. All right, Molly, let's get rolling here. I want to start with some news that's, I guess, officially happening tomorrow, but the video came out today. Nikki Haley, no surprise, announcing for president. What do you make of her entry into this fray? What do you think of her generally?
1: Guy, I'm having trouble getting into the primary for the Republican nominee for president, but I'm trying. I'm doing my best. But I think at this point I'm just excited to see everybody getting into the pool. I think it it can be a healthy way for people and parties to have debates about issues that matter. And I think she's, you know, at least as good of a person to get in the pool as anyone else. Um, And so I'm just kind of excited to see what she says.
0: A lot of folks, it seems like, will be pushing the new generation card and that overall sort of thrust. We heard it from Sarah Huckabee Sanders in the response to the State of the Union, new generation of Republican leadership. Nikki Haley doing the same thing here. People who are urging Ron DeSantis to run, making a similar point. How resonant do you think the generational thing is? Or is that sort of code for turning the page from Biden and Trump? What do you make of that?
1: I actually think it's code for something else and that it doesn't have everything to do with age but attitude. And so... I think, first of all, Nikki Haley is very savvy that she's navigated a lot of these disputes within the Republican Party very well. But when people are talking about a new generation of Republican leadership, they're really talking about moving on from this approach that the Republican Party took for a few decades or not even that long, um, this like resistance to fighting in a tough way for the issues that matter. And so even though probably – I have no idea how old they are, but probably Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are roughly the same age. But Ron DeSantis has a very different approach of being aggressive and bold and courageous with his policy ideas, whereas Nikki kind of is – more like what we've seen from a lot of Republicans, and, and that's a very popular thing too, and a lot of people like that. But she's, you know, she she leans into some identity politics. She's very much about, you know, what's the appropriate or proper way to say something. And so, I think these these are the types of issues that we get to fight about in a primary, um, and you know, that you would hope to see on the Democrat side as well. But it'll be interesting to see how she plays it, what lane she's going for.
0: Molly, I saw a tweet from our colleague, Britt Hume, who was highlighting a Twitter thread from Walter Olson at the Cato Institute, who writes at Reason Magazine. And he was drawing attention to something that I know a lot of conservative journalists and conservative writers in a certain space have been watching, which is this disinfo index, a disinformation index that has been funded to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars by the U.S. State Department that – basically determines, based on the opinions of this group, what websites are dangerous purveyors of misinformation and disinformation. And then that list, that roster gets fed to online advertisers. So this is sort of trying to punish sites and entities that are determined by these folks to be – People who traffic in misinformation or disinformation. And that list includes Reason Magazine, DC Examiner, New York Post. I mean, a lot of different sites where we have friends who work. I know that I think town halls got dinged. It's just sort of wild to see not some left-wing outside advocacy group coming up with a roster like this and then trying to pressure advertisers. They've done that sort of thing now for many years. This is a U.S. federal government-funded entity that therefore has some extra degree of maybe prestige or credibility in the eyes of advertisers who might not know how to navigate this stuff terribly well. Meanwhile, we learn that this group has also come up with a list of 10 websites designated as the least risky, meaning most credible in their eyes, including NPR, ProPublica, BuzzFeed, Huffington Post. I mean, it's not really subtle here. Molly, what they're trying to do. I just think the inclusion of federal money is what is particularly egregious about this.
1: Yes. And you're absolutely right to highlight here. The groups that they claim are risky are some of the few media entities that have done excellent work pushing back against information operations and disinformation, whether that were whether that was the smears of Brett Kavanaugh, the Russia collusion hoax, some of the a poorly designed public health response to the COVID threat, these entities that they claim are risky are actually the ones doing journalism. And the ones that they claim are safe are some of the worst perpetrators of misinformation and disinformation that we have seen in recent decades. So all that this is is a censorship regime. And it is a left-wing group financed by your taxpayer dollars, my taxpayer dollars, and the weight of the state to help the left accomplish its authoritarian censorship goals and desires. It is horrific. And also I just want to point out one of the groups that was targeted, they were the ones who exposed that this was uh, a big operation where you had left-wing groups and the government working together to deplatform political opponents. Yeah.
0: And look, it's subjective. right, you can look at an article from website A and say that's misinformation, that's misleading. Then you can say, well, that same website published article B, which was extremely important. It was also labeled misinformation, but it was absolutely true. It's been vindicated. And some of the people piling on the misinformation accusation team were some of the allegedly reputable organizations. I just feel like the federal government especially – But even some of these outside groups should just stay out of this. And advertisers, I think, are wrong, naive, or worse to go along with these types of things because clearly there's a thumb on the ideological scale. That's the point. The point here is not to actually get good, reliable information to the American people regardless of the source, which is at least a reasonable, laudable goal. The purpose of these lists is to blacklist dissenters and to try to enforce some sort of monopoly on ideas. It's, it's really not much more complicated than that, even though they try to dress it up in, in much more uh, sort of honorable terms and frame it.
1: And, and there should be action taken against this. I mean, the private entities that are involved in this censorship and deplatforming campaign are engaged in some antitrust behavior. But as you note, it is the involvement of the federal government that makes this so much more problematic. It's a First do Amendment have issue. First Amendment Clear rights cut. in this country. Not, not, just, not
0: just the spirit, but the letter.
1: Exactly. We have speech and press rights. And when you have the federal government coming in to protect its power by pushing back in this really draconian authoritarian way against, again, those few entities that are independent from you know, what the establishment says, you know, are the contours of what you're allowed to talk about. This is a huge, major threat. They should have nothing to do with this. And they are in violation of the of the Constitution and the rights that that are protected therein.
0: Molly Hemingway, on a separate topic, we had Dr. Nicole Sapphire here on the program yesterday talking about COVID, COVID policies, and a new consortium of data about masks and mask mandates and the efficacy of mask mandates. And the results were devastating to the mask crowd, certainly to the mandate crowd. Hasn't gotten all that much play certain places, but highly relevant. Related to that, and the reason I mention that, is there's a federal program called Head Start, which is this federal pre-K program. Parenthetically, gold-plated studies have shown that it doesn't work. The actual data shows that Head Start is a failed program on its own merits, but... Setting that off to the side, keeping it in the parentheses, the program exists. It has a federal website. And as of this week, still, in early 2023, there's a video featured on this website from Sesame Street. There's a Muppet trying to teach young children, including kids with autism, to wear masks. Knowing everything that we now know and have for quite some time, Molly, this is still live on the federal website for Head Start. Listen.
2: Uh, I know masks can take time to get used to, but I like how cool your mask is. Uh,
5: painted it.
2: Oh, <laughs> I see that. You painted your mask to make it extra special. Uh, bunny. <laughs> that bunny nose you painted makes you look just like Fluffster. Hey, is your mask as soft as Fluffster? Soft as Fluffster? Good, good. A soft mask feels a lot nicer on your face. Oh. Uh, uh, mm, uh, Oh, oh, honey, do you want to take your mask off? Mm-hmm. Oh, look. Why don't we practice wearing it for just a little bit first, okay? Uh, Fluffster. Oh, of course. Fluffster and I will both practice with you here. Just wear it while I count to five, okay, honey? Fl- Fluffster, you ready? Okay, here we go. One, two, three, four, five. five yay! EA is right. You did great, sweetheart. You wore your mask for five
0: whole seconds. Honey, you're still wearing six seconds, seven seconds, eight seconds. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you're really good at this, Julia. Okay. Molly, let's just say that this video were put together in April of 2020. I guess that might have been still too early before they were telling us masks were good because there was a while where they were bad. We didn't need them. Then they were good again. And they had to be mandated. So let's just say, you know, summer or even fall of 2020, just to be generous. I can understand stuff like this happening to try to acclimate kids to this very strange, disturbing new reality where people were kind of just grappling through the dark, trying to figure out what was going on. This is pushing now March of 2023. And listening to that clip now with fresh ears, knowing what we've known for well over two years at this point about masks, kids, kids with autism trying to learn how to speak. It just bothers me viscerally that this video remains on the Head Start federal government website, because right now in this current context, it sounds like a very cheerful form of abuse is what it sounds like
1: almost made me want to cry listening to that. It is horrific torture of children. And the idea that this would be presented as something good, as opposed to an example of how awful people were to children in particular, is insane. And yeah, you know, you say it's, it would be one thing if it were at the beginning, but this was at the end. But you know, there never was good scientific evidence in support of mask mandates, much less for children. At this point, you know, we have this study of studies, which shows conclusively that mask mandates had no effect on the spread of COVID. And, you know, there's a difference between masked environments, you know, where you can replace a mask very quickly, like in a hospital setting, where you're doing it for a very particular reason, and doing what we did with children, which is, you know, having none of the benefits that are associated with mask wearing and for no good public health reason um it just seems criminal like whoever was involved in that do they not hear that they sound like evil torturers of children and, and it was would... it was like programming them to be subservient to to adult control in exactly the ways i mean you know we we try to we try to protect children from some of the other bad ways that that adults can um manipulate their emotions and things like that that's what this sounded like a training video for manipulation of children
0: yep And you would think at some point when the data has come out and the evidence is clear and the harm of forced masking for kids is also clear, especially for kids with special needs and learning disabilities, you would think someone would say, hey, remember the video that we put together? We might want to take that off the official website of a pre-K federal program. And yet here we are. And you wonder if they'll ever take it down. Do they acknowledge that that is now harmful and bad science i don't know but the fact that people are at least drawing attention to it might facilitate some sort of change but i mean you're right i think we both had a very similar reaction just listening to it knowing everything that we've known not for a few weeks or a few months but for years now so i just want to get your reaction and uh, i think we're on the same page on that gotta leave it there for now molly hemingway editor in chief at the federalist best-selling author fox news contributor molly always enjoy it happy valentine's day we'll talk soon
1: You too. Bye.
0: We'll be right back.
3: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson show.
0: It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson show. One of the things that I like about the Super Bowl, not just because I'm a sports fan. It is one of the remaining elements of our shared culture in this country. We're so fragmented in so many ways, but the Super Bowl does bring us together. And it did so in a huge way on Sunday. The ratings are in. Listen to this from Fox Sports PR. Super Bowl 57 scored 113 million viewers, which ranks it as the third most watched television program of all time. The third highest TV show in terms of a single event televised, third highest rated ever. It was the most watched Super Bowl in six years. It was the most streamed Super Bowl of all time, which makes sense. That's the way that more and more people are consuming events like this. The most streamed event in the history of Fox Sports. I think I also saw that the halftime show was the second highest of all time in terms of ratings. The number that I think I saw was 118 million people. So there was a tune-in factor of millions for the halftime show. Rihanna and that whole conversation, I mentioned what I thought of it yesterday Described it as a very lukewarm take, which is what it was. I thought it was fine, good, kind of cool to see. Some good songs, had some drawbacks. There you go. My understanding is number one still is that Katy Perry spectacle from years ago, which I loved. With the dancing sharks and the giant horse and the medley of her hits. I mean, that thing just had so much circus-like whimsy to it. And it was such a grand performance. Even though I'm not a huge Katy Perry fan, I loved that halftime show. So I'm just kind of glad, like tickled, that that's still number one. But congratulations to Fox Sports, 113 million Super Bowl viewers. And I know some of those viewers are extra happy, the Chiefs fans. We'll take a break. We'll come back. The Guy Benson Show resumes. Senator Marco Rubio joins us live. The vice chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Lots to talk about with Senator Rubio. Straight ahead.
3: talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: We're back on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for being here. With us now, U.S. Senator Marco Rubio, Republican of Florida, Vice Chairman of the Select Committee on Intelligence, Senior Member member as well of the Committee on Foreign Relations in the U.S. Senate. And, Senator, it's good to have you back here.
8: Thanks for having me back.
0: All right, so I know that this morning all senators had the opportunity to be briefed, about what has been going on with these unidentified objects getting shot down, so many questions from the American people. I understand that there's sensitivity. You can't tell us everything that you learned because it's classified, but what can you tell us? Was it a worthwhile briefing? Did you learn things?
8: Yeah. So first let me tell you that I believe that 99 percent, let me be fair, let's just be generous, 95 percent, of what they shared with us at that briefing today it may be classified, but it doesn't need to be. There's nothing classified about it. Okay? That's my first observation. My second is this. We need to stop acting like this is new, like this is some unusual. It's unusual that we shoot three things down over a weekend, but that's the only thing unusual about this. Uh, the balloon, we knew what it was. The Chinese balloon, we knew what it was. The other three cases are basically similar to, and in some cases eerily identical to, a uh, long time. Reports on this. So, just to give you an example, right? Since March of last year alone, uh, from March to December of 2022, the uh, a new office that was created under the Director of National Intelligence had 247 new reports of instances of objects flying over U.S. skies, often over sensitive or uh, or restricted airspace. About 170 of those remain un- uncharacterized. Okay, uh, according to the, the report, 171 are uncharacterized and unattributed, and some of them appear to have demonstrated unusual flight characteristics or performance capabilities and therefore require further analysis. So these people are acting like, oh, this is very unusual. The shootdown is very unusual. But the stories that they tell, the attributes you hear of these flight patterns, are basically, in some cases, identical to some of these reports that have come in over 500 of them, those we've now collected under the Aero program, but, uh, but at least, uh, and, and, and certainly the 200 and some odd that were reported just last year alone.
0: So what exactly does that mean then? Because I know there's been all this speculation, right? Some people were jumping on the aliens train and the white house finally knocked that down a little bit. You also have of course, tons of speculation about China or foreign actors deliberately flying this stuff into our airspace with new technology to try to, gather intelligence on us. There's also folks saying, well, could this just be, you know, scientific balloons or other uh, unknown craft that are totally anodyne, doing nothing sinister? They just didn't file the right paperwork with the FAA. So we don't really know what they are. Is it some combination of the latter two, Senator? I don't know what you're allowed to say to us, but so far Americans just are deeply curious. What is the nature of, of these objects?
8: So, as I said, there was 200 and some odd reported last year, 171 of them are uncharacterized. So a bunch of them they were able to characterize, and others may have explanations once the analysis is done, once further analysis is done on data that's collected and the like. And and I think it's possible that it's a combination of multiple things that you've just pointed to. The point is this, the notion that there are things flying over the airspace of the United States, and the one that always has concerned me for a long time is objects flying over restricted and sensitive airspace mm-hmm. that um, that isn't ours, and we don't know whose it is or what it's doing there. Those are the ones that I'm most concerned about. And uh, the answer is the way I imagine the police, you know, go about murder investigations or criminal investigations, which is you may have some suspicions of what it may be, but you collect evidence, and it may lead you to the culprit. And I think that's the case here. You have to collect evidence. What bothers me the most is this. There is – we set up an office through the ODNI and the Arrow program, it's called, and it is supposed to be the task force that takes in all this data. So these planes went up and intercepted these things, right? Those planes collected data. Right. They did. They collected video data. They collected telemetry data. You don't just shoot missiles at something and not collect data. That data needs to be given immediately to Arrow. Why? So that they can compare that data – to all of these other cases we have data on and what they may find is oh yeah this is just like the one we identified 2 years ago and it it was we know what it is now it was x and you've solved the problem. It may not, and they may just add further to the study. The fact that that's not happening and that instead what you have is them talking about creating a brand-new task force that Jake Sullivan is going to head up. We don't need another. We already have one that exists for this very purpose, and it's not filled with political appointees. It's filled with data scientists, aerospace scientists, people that specialize in this. That's the only way we're going to begin to get answers on this. Look, what, is, what do I think? I think one of my suspicions has always been – Our adversaries know that the United States protects its airspace against missiles and airplanes. What it doesn't protect its airspace against is slow-moving objects at 20,000 feet um, that are small, We don't protect against that because we don't look for that. We finally started looking for that after the Chinese spy balloon, and all of a sudden we start spotting things because we've never looked for it before. And so my sense is I can't prove that it's an adversary, but if I were an adversary, they know we're going to see an airplane. They know we're going to see a rocket, and they know we know they have satellites. What we're probably not looking for is a slow-moving object at 20,000 feet that's scooping up a bunch of data. And so, um, you know, now that we're looking for it, we're starting to see it. I think that that's a real possibility here. But you only start to be able to answer that on the basis of the data you collect. And the fact that that data is not being shared in real time is, shows you that uh, the overlapping bureaucracies can often get in the way of answers.
0: Based on what you have been briefed on so far, do you believe it was the right thing to shoot down all four of the objects that have been shot down within the last week plus? Well,
8: let me, I always bifurcate the things, okay? The Chinese spy balloon was a balloon. We knew it was a balloon. We've seen those balloons before. It was clear what it was, and it should have been shot before it entered the U.S. When all is said and done, I believe we will learn that they collected far more data than we give them credit for. I haven't collected on it, okay? But we know what that is. The other three look, look nothing like that by their own admission. We actually still don't have a very accurate description uh, of what it was from still. anybody. Still, well, because they say we have to recover it, but um, we, we don't even have pilot testimony on what it is. They call it objects, but that's about the extent to what they've described at this point, because they say until they recover it, some of which may never be recovered, I understand. Today they're saying that We won't know more about it. So um, the, the point is, was it the smart thing to do? The answer is I don't know until we know at least some more attributes about what it was. The Chinese spy balloon, we knew what it was. We knew why it was there. And and I believe that it should have been shot down before it got in uh, over Montana, you know, I think, right now, or in the U.S. through Idaho. I think that should have been shot down. These others, maybe – But, I mean, we fired pretty expensive missiles at a very small object, Um, and, I mean, I'm curious why now after 200-some-odd cases we finally start shooting at these things, maybe it was the right thing to do. Um, But until we know more about what they have on them, it's hard to make that – you know, I'm not going to second-guess their view of it. My point is – These things aren't new, okay, at 20,000 feet, and if these things over the weekend at 20,000 feet pose the risk to civilian aircraft, then the 171 cases that preexisted that we know about just last year – were similarly dangerous, right. but they were not intercepted or shot down. So I'm not here to blame anybody on this because I know it's a new issue in some ways, but it certainly is one that merits a more serious attention and certainly more disclosure to the American people because the absence of disclosure leads to wide spe- wild, wild speculation and, uh, and, and things that really are not productive to getting answers.
0: Similar but different question. Our colleague here at Fox, Lucas Tomlinson, today reporting that NORAD said that it scrambled fighter jets... Just earlier this week, just yesterday, to intercept Russian bombers and fighters off the coast of Alaska. What can you tell us about that? That seems like another sort of concerning development that's not exactly the same, but kind of falls in the same overall bucket, at least in the minds of many Americans.
8: So I'm not diminishing that, but that happens often. The Russians are all sending out these these bear bombers, accompanied by jets. It's always sort of like strategic muscle flexing. Um, they 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 do This we've seen that before. We know what those are. They've done that before. Uh, they do it multiple times a year um, in different parts of the world, but certainly in the over the Bering Straits. So it doesn't surprise me because we've that's been going on for a long time. Certainly during the Cold War, we'd see, and we've seen it in the last you know ten years as well. Right. So that does not surprise me.
0: I saw that your office put out a statement just moments ago about a vote that you're hoping to see in the full U.S. Senate involving TikTok, bipartisan legislation. What does that look like, and do you think that vote will come?
8: Yeah, I don't know if that vote will come. I hope it will. It has a lot of support now in the House and Senate. And here's the fundamental question. Should a company – that has to comply with Chinese law, which is what ByteDance, that owns TikTok, has to do, a Chinese law that says that if we tell you you have to give us data, you must turn it over to us, should they be allowed to operate in the United States when they can, on a daily basis, collect all kinds of personal data on over 55 to 60 million American users of their app. If tomorrow the Chinese government tells ByteDance, we want you to use ByteDance, TikTok to give us all the data you've collected on the 50 or 60 million American users, and we want you to use it by the way to ensure that we are spreading information that favors the Chinese narrative of any event, whether it's to sow division in America or support you know, China invading Taiwan, you have to do it. ByteDance has to do it. They won't exist if they don't do it. So, should companies like that be allowed to operate in the United States? My answer is no, they should not. Now, if they divest, if they're sold, if they're no longer owned by a Chinese company that has to comply with Chinese law, that would be different. But they're owned by a Chinese company that has to answer the Chinese Communist Party. No company in China exists if the Chinese Communist Party doesn't allow it to exist.
0: Right. And so the question becomes, because I know, and and you've pointed this out in some of your writings and speeches as well and interviews, that we've seen a lot of states ban TikTok and federal agencies ban TikTok from government devices, which makes sense. You're looking to go a step further, saying if this app is owned by this company, it would just need to... Be what illegal in the U.S. What would happen to 50, 60 million people who use the product, like the product? There'd probably be some pushback. I, I'm with you on this. I just I can imagine some people saying, "Well, why is it such a big deal? I don't care if they have my stuff." What's the response to that? Well,
8: again, my concern is not that they have the individual information of any American who has no problem with it. My my concern is, I have to act in the national interest, and it is not in the national interest that any foreign power, not to mention a hostile one, be able to collect the personal data of 60, 50, 60 million American users, which they can use for everything from shaping narratives to their benefit, uh, to advantaging their commercial entities over ours, to, frankly, uh, being able to uh, uh, use it to collect data on people that are not on TikTok. Because if I can pull all the data off someone's phone, even if I don't have TikTok, they are a contact of mine, I text with them, I communicate with them, it crosses over and it cross-pollinates and suddenly they can do geolocation. Look, just a few months ago, it was discovered that TikTok was collecting the uh, location information of journalists of journalists that were, that were reporting things that the Chinese government didn't like. That's just the tip of the iceberg of the way this could be used. So it's just not in our national interest. Now, look, it's very simple. TikTok could be sold to another company and that company no longer responds to the Chinese communist party. And it can continue. I get it. Look, I know we all like buying products that are made in China because they're cheaper, but it has not been in our national interest to destroy factories and our manufacturing capability and to become heavily dependent on Chinese, Chinese supply chains. It's given them a tremendous leverage over our country. So, uh, on
0: medicine and all sorts of other, you know, absolutely crucial things. If the stuff ever hit the fan, uh, I think that reliance would be a massive regret. we got to get our arms around that sooner than later. I know that's part of your push here on this. Senator Marco Rubio, Republican Florida, Vice Chair of the Intelligence Committee in the Senate. Appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll step aside. We'll come right back. When we return, an abbreviated home stretch. You don't want to miss that when we return. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show, Valentine's Day edition. Love that you're all here. GuyBensonShow.com is the website. Podcast always free. Catch me on Kennedy tonight in the 7 p.m. Eastern Time Hour, Fox Business Network. So kind of a cool thing happened over the weekend. Mary Catherine Hamm, my best friend, came over to the house, and we were on a Zoom call together with someone who had bid on and won an hour-long Zoom call with us as part of a fundraiser for a charitable organization that builds houses for American troops and veterans. It's a great cause. I was asked to participate in this fundraiser and have that option out there, and I was honored to do it. And the person with the high winning bid turned out to be a huge fan of this show. And not just any fan of this show, she lives far away. I would venture to say she might be our most devoted, forest-flung fan at the Guy Benson show, a woman named Asha who lives in India. And she listens basically to every single show that we do. So when she saw on social media that we were auctioning off this Zoom call, she's like, hey, that's something I can do. Would love to virtually meet Guy and Mary Catherine. And so she put the bid in and she won. And the money went, of course, as I mentioned, to that really worthy cause. So you never know who's going to show up on the other end of this virtual meeting. And she was absolutely delightful. And she also clearly is someone who listens a lot to the show based on the references she was making she was drinking a Coke Zero and eating peanut M&Ms, knowing that I'm a fan of both. I, in case you were curious, was drinking a long drink. So was Mary Catherine. So it was all very on brand. And I asked her, how on earth did you end up stumbling across the Guy Benson show? And the answer was through social media. She got turned on to Fox News through Tucker, started watching Tucker, then started watching, I guess, on satellite or streaming Fox Nation, whatever avenues she has in India, started expanding her Fox News footprint, watching other shows, and really began to enjoy Special Report with Bret Baier. And of course, I do that panel with some regularity, so she caught me on the show a few times, and they would promote our show when I was introduced, so she decided to do some digging and find us, and the rest is history. And she began listening about, sounds like, two years ago, so... By no means is she a brand-new listener, but she wasn't listening from the very beginning in the OG days of Benson & Harf. But when we were chatting, she asked me if I would record a little video on my phone, just like filming the screen on my laptop computer, because she had a message to say hello to the rest of our team. Very sweet. Cut 30.
2: I'm with Guy Benson and Mary. Just want to say hi to all of you. I love listening to the show, especially Homestretch from India. I'm a big fan of Cookie, YY, and Dan, and you guys are like a family to me now.
0: Cookie, she's got all the parlance down. And Christine, at one point in this conversation, because we had an hour together, I said, do you have any questions about the show? Since you listen so often, sometimes people are curious about certain things. Would you like to know what her very first question was?
7: (laughs) I'm scared, but yes, I do.
0: Her very first question was, I went... Looking and searching through the archives to find the meaning of this. I couldn't get it. I didn't understand what happened to Cookie's pony. Oh, my God. It it was a carousel question, and I had to tell her what happened (laughs) in a very disturbing Answer to that simple question, she now knows the truth about what you did as a young girl to your pony who you rejected and had killed. So that was her number one most burning question. It was a carousel question, and that was absolutely highly amusing to me. Mary Catherine cracked up as well, and hopefully my answer was uh, sufficient. So, Christine, you are an international celebrity. I have to tell you that. It's very important that you and the rest of the team understand that. And uh, Asha is evidence for that. What a wonderful conversation. What a great cause. And Asha, I'm quite confident you're listening. So hello from halfway across the world. Thank you for listening. Thank all of you for listening. No matter where you are, every day, 3 to 6 Eastern time, podcast free every day if that's an option for you. See you on Kennedy tonight. Back on the radio tomorrow. It's the Guy Benson Show.